in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. So we've been following the quadruple homicide of four University of Idaho students in Moscow, Idaho. Notably, there's been an arrest. Brian Koberger, a Washington State University criminology PhD candidate, was arrested several months ago. But recently, there's been some more information released about what exactly is going on in the case. And what I'm specifically referring to is authorities in Pennsylvania unsealed a few search warrants for Koberger's property and his parents' property that kind of give us an insight into some of the evidence that's been collected against Koberger in this case so far. So in this episode, what I think we can do is sort of look through these inventories, essentially, and discuss what police have seized and what that could mean for the case against Koberger. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach 
is we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the University of Idaho Murders Search Warrants. Before we get into a discussion of these particular search warrants, Kevin, I was thinking maybe you and I could talk about the concept of search warrants in general. You know, we all have heard of search warrants. We've all followed cases where they're important. It's sort of part and parcel for true crime cases to kind of be hearing a lot about search warrants. But at the same time, there might be some sort of legality issues pertaining to them that maybe most people don't necessarily understand. I think because of television shows, you know, you kind of just see, okay, we have a search warrant, let's raid the house, let's look for the evidence. But it's a little bit more complicated than that in real life. Is that correct? Yes. So tell us about search warrants. And I guess, are they licensed for police to go in, raid your house and grab everything that looks interesting? Search warrants are not blank checks. They don't give the law enforcement unlimited power to go in and do what they want. When they ask for a search warrant, investigators need to basically explain why they think particular evidence related to a crime would be found in a particular location. In other words, they can't just say, well, we think uh, John Doe is a suspicious fellow. We want to go in his house and poke around and see what we can find. They have to say, well, John Doe was seen fleeing the murder scene with a smoking gun, and he went immediately to his house. Therefore, we want to look through the house for the murder weapon. That's obviously uh, an extreme hypothetical situation, but it sort of gives you the idea. I guess, could you speak to why that is? Because I think maybe some people hearing that might be a bit surprised and think, well, If there's some really good evidence in somebody's house or car or whatnot, you know, shouldn't that just be grabbed? Why does it have to be so specific? What's the importance of guarding those rights? Uh, Well, to answer that question, we pretty much have to go way back in history, even before the United States of America was a country. The residents of colonial era America had to deal with a government that had the power basically to go into their homes at any time and search for anything at all and seize anything at all. And I guess it's important to remember that when you give a government or an agency a power unchecked, it ultimately ends up being abused, which is what happened in that era. 
And the people of that era in America were very frustrated by this and hated it. And so when it came time to, after we declared and won our independence, and after we wrote our Constitution, they wrote the Bill of Rights, enshrining what they considered to be the most important rights citizens should have. You've all heard, of course, the First Amendment is the freedom of speech. Well, the Fourth Amendment is the freedom to be protected from unreasonable searches. And the Fourth Amendment spells out that the government should not have the right to come into your home and conduct a search unless there is probable cause, which is supported by an oath or affirmation. And it also must particularly describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. And obviously, that was the language of the amendment, and that's the language we still use today when we talk about search warrants and the like. Can I just say that I'm so happy that you went back into history to give us that answer? I think that's, I, I love that. <laughs> you're the history major. I'm the history major, so I love it. You're, you're bringing it all full circle. But it's very much important to remember that when we're talking about search warrants, because I think sometimes popular media just gives, uh, this guy, this guy looks shifty, let's get him and, you know, toss his house. And it's obviously way more complicated than that, as it should be. You know, we want to enjoy you know, liberty and whatnot and our rights. We also want killers to get caught, but that means that there's a process for doing things properly. So in a crime case, though, obviously, we don't have the right to murder people and and get away with it. So how do authorities navigate that? Well, you apply for a search warrant, you specify what exactly you are looking for and why it's important to your case, and why you think it may exist in the place that you want to search. And you go for it, basically. Once you get the approval of a judge. So what we'll be talking about today first is a search warrant for Brian Koberger's parents' house in Pennsylvania in Monroe County. Now, this is a search warrant that was filed with Pennsylvania authorities because that's where it's located. The crimes happened in Idaho, but Idaho police can't just go in and, you know, knock on his door. There's jurisdictional issues there. And one notable element of all of this is that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, is actually seemingly helping with this. Um, Yeah, it's a very complicated case because, as you mentioned, the crimes happen in Idaho. Koberger lives in Washington, and then he goes to his parents in Pennsylvania. That's three different states. Yes. So the FBI is going to be a really necessary partner in this because the crime is a sort of crossing state lines to a certain extent. They can go to Pennsylvania. We know that an FBI SWAT team ultimately arrested Brian Koberger. So they are very much a part of this. It's their receipt, essentially. The receipt for all the evidence collected comes from the United States Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigation. So they're much, very much a part of this. It's being done in Pennsylvania, and it just shows you the scope of this crime, that it's spilling over state lines, essentially, and requiring some of this co- cooperation. And, you know, we already saw that, the collaboration between Idaho and Washington authorities who were sort of working together on some of this. So it's very much a national situation at this point. And at least based on what we know now, it seems to be almost a textbook example of how well different law enforcement agencies can work together. Yeah, we're really not seeing many hints of friction or problems, at least not that have arisen to the surface at this point. So it's heartening to see local, regional, state, and federal authorities working together in concert to investigate the really heinous slaying of these four kids. Now, 
let's take a look at the application for a search warrant that was filled out. This will essentially give us a sense of what exactly authorities were going for when they searched this Monroe County residence. These are listed as items to be searched and seized in the application. The person of Brian C. Koberger, date of birth November 21st, 1994. Blood or other bodily fluids or materials and items with blood or other bodily fluids or materials on, in, or near them. Knives, sheaths, other weapons, or instrumentalities of injury or death, and sales receipts or documentation from purchases or acquisition of such items. Documents, records, medication, drugs, or other substances, prescription or otherwise, bottles, labels, syringes, packaging, and other items associated with medications, drugs, or other substances, prescription or otherwise, that could relate to physical or mental states of assailants or victims, or relating to or containing information indicating, suggesting, or otherwise evidencing violence, a physical attack, a fight, a motive slash hostility, or motive slash hostility for any of the same. Any property belonging to Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and the two witnesses. Documents, records, data compilations related to 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, and or Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, or the two witnesses. Clothing to include but not limited to dark shirts or pants, masks, shoes with a diamond pattern sole. DNA, footprints, fingerprints, fibers, animal and or human hair, or other physical or trace evidence, or items bearing these relating to or containing information indicating, suggesting, or related to violence, a fight, or motive slash hostility for any of the same. Four samples of Brian Koberger's deoxyribonucleic acid by buckle swabs taken from the inside of Koberger's mouth and or whole blood samples. Alcoholic beverages, other intoxicants, and any containers or receipts from the same. Data compilations relating to or containing information indicating, suggesting, or related to violence, stabbing, a fight, or mode of hostility for any of the same, to include without limitation ledgers, papers, lists, books, notes, letters, calendars, diaries, tapes, photographs, videos, or other media or similar documents or items, computer or communication devices capable of storing electronic data, other electronic storage devices and media, and access to contents of all of the above. All electronic devices, including all communications content, including email, text, SMS, MMS, or app chats, applications, cloud storage, notes, or voicemail, including attachments, source and destination addresses, time and date information, connection logs, images, and any other records, including indicia of use, ownership, possession, or control of such communication, or including metadata of photos or social networking posts, Wi-Fi logs, and data associated with installed applications, all photographic video, audio data, and associated metadata, all internet history for the above, including cookies, bookmarks, web history, and search items, all stored IP addresses associated, all financial information related to the above, all indicia of social network posts slash updates slash tags, Wi-Fi network tables associated wireless devices, Wi-Fi networks or Bluetooth devices, associated connected devices, backup devices, and stored passwords or user dictionaries, indicia of residency in or ownership or possession of the premises and any of the above items, all vehicles in which Coburger has access to including but not limited to a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra, 
So as you could tell from that long list, this is not a shot in the dark. This is not let's go in and see what's interesting. They know exactly what they want and what they're looking for. And that is evidence that they feel will help them convict Koberger in this massacre, essentially. Yes, it's a very well-constructed and well-reasoned search warrant. Absolutely. And so I think what we can do next is for the Pennsylvania residents, this is the Monroe County residence that Koberger's parents own, where he was arrested. Let's go through some of the major categories in terms of the items that they actually seized. And I think that could tell us something about what they found and how it may further the case against Koberger. And remember, Koberger himself was arrested on December 30th, 2022. As you know, on the murder sheet, we love to make spreadsheets. We love to categorize things. I'm going to categorize the various items seized from this residence into a few major categories. One is weaponry. Two is technology. Three is books, documents, notebooks, and notes. Four is apparel. Five is swabs. And six is miscellaneous. Let's start off by talking about perhaps the most chilling category, which of course is weaponry. So Kevin is going to read a segment from Brett Payne's statement in the probable cause affidavit for Brian Koberger's arrest, just to remind us all about the weaponry that was believed to be used in this crime. I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side when viewed from the door. The sheath was later processed and had K-Bar, USMC, and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor Insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA suspect profile left on the button snap of the knife sheath. We find out from the list of items seized from the Koberger residence that they actually seized not just one, but three different types of knives. One's just listed as a knife. Another is listed as a Smith & Wesson pocket knife. And a third is called a Taylor cutlery knife with leather sheath. So they're very much looking at bladed weapons here. I'm most curious about the vaguely described knife because, you know, a pocket knife doesn't necessarily sound like that would be a K-bar knife. Obviously, it's a different thing. Cutlery knife also seems to come with its own sheath. So the vaguely described knife is the one I'm sort of looking at here. And I would be curious, at, does that turn out to be the murder weapon or is that just, you know, something that they were interested in that turned out not to be related? What sort of test do you imagine they would do on that knife to try to determine if it was, in fact, the murder weapon? Well, they've got to be looking at things like DNA, blood, you know, testing for the presence of that. You know, obviously, there was plenty of time to wash it off, potentially, but we do know that there can be biological residue that kind of remains or kind of gets stuck in the handle area. So there can be, there can still be evidence, even if there's an attempt made to clean it. So I'll be very curious to see where they go, you know, with that one. But one thing that really interests me about the weaponry section of this, and uh, to be clear, I made those sections. They, you know, this is, that's not how they listed this. They, these items were all listed willy nilly on the actual receipt list, um, but I'm just categorizing it to make it easier to follow along. They didn't just confiscate these knives. They confiscated firearms as well, including a Glock 22, 40 caliber serial, three Glock 40 caliber magazines, which were all empty apparently, and the application and record of sale of the Glock 22. So that's interesting. They're looking at guns as well. Now, I, I you know, we, we know from 
the police stating this multiple times and from the probable cause for Koberger's arrest, these victims were not shot. They were killed with bladed weapons. I don't think we should necessarily read too much into that. I think that's pretty standard. If someone's arrested for something like this and you're looking at different weapons, you're going to kind of grab all of them. I'm curious. This this obviously gets into the realm of speculation. We're obviously we're very wary to go to, but I'm going to ask the question of you anyway. Let's say hypothetically that vaguely described knife was in fact the murder weapon. What would it suggest to you that Kohlberger takes this knife with him from his home in Washington all the way back to Pennsylvania? Well, it certainly would not speak to somebody who's like most concerned about getting away with it, because you'd think that if that was the primary concern, you would discard the knife in a place where it can never be found. You would throw it out, basically. Get it to a landfill, throw it out at a dumpster behind some store that you're not tied to. So if that is the murder weapon, which is a big if, it may... It's a huge if. Huge-ish. I mean, like, it's certainly not set in stone. But that would speak to somebody who's bold, maybe a bit impulsive, not really thinking this through because, again, that would be like the first thing you'd want to get rid of. Another thing it could speak to is, I mean, people have made a lot of speculations about Koberger. If, you know, he's obviously innocent until proven guilty, but if he is guilty, what what was the motivation? What what was he doing? But, I mean, we know that in some cases, killers want to hold on to trophies of a crime because they get pleasure from remembering that or having having some sort of souvenir, essentially. So, you could also speculate that if he's guilty and that is the murder weapon, maybe it was something like that. But at the very least, not like a strategically good move from the perspective of someone trying to get away with murder. Especially since, I mean, a, a knife is a small item. You could make an effort to get rid of it. It's not a car. It's like you could drop it somewhere, basically. And you, you might stand a pretty good chance if you're not being surveyed that uh, you could just get rid of it. Let's move on to the technology. Now, what do we know about the technology as it applies to the crime? Well, we know from Brett Payne's statement that the investigators were very interested in Koberger's phone activity. And we also know investigators felt that Koberger purposely turned off his cell phone at the time of the crime. And they saw that as suspicious. Suddenly, there's this sort of blackout around the time where the crime is being committed. What does that mean? So the only things actually related to Koberger's cell phone in this are his AT&T bill and his actual cell phone. So they got both of those things. But they also pulled out a lot of different other technology, including laptops, power cables, actually multiple laptops, two with damage. So I'd be curious about that. I mean, you and I... How, how do you interpret that? I don't think... I, I mean, because I think like the... The true crime brain person might be like, well, those were his laptops and he's trying to destroy evidence, so he's trying to destroy them. But let's be honest. I mean, you and I both have old junky laptops lying around that we don't use anymore, but like we, you know, we didn't really want to throw them out. Maybe we need them. So, I mean, it, it could be something as simple as that. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden 
in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You've got a dead body, Inspector. I may be able to help with that. This winter, all your favorite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera. It wasn't an accident, was it, love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favorite detectives only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Moving on to the documentation here, the documentary evidence and and the category there. One thing that I know has set a lot of online folks who follow this case abuzz is the fact that one of the things seized was just listed as, quote, book with underlining on page 118. I mean, what the heck, right? Like, it Everybody wants to know what book it is. There's been lots of speculation. I won't engage in any speculation because that's too vague. But I mean, what would that be? Intriguing. It's intriguing, but it could be literally anything. When I was in college, I know a lot of my fellow students had plenty of books which used in different classes where they were underlined passages. Yes. It could be nothing. It could be interesting. I also I knew a lot of college students who, to save money, would buy used books. And sometimes used books already have underlining in them. So until we know what book it is, what's underlined, and whether or not Koberger did the underlining himself, I'm not sure how we can really even discuss this. Yeah, we can't discuss it. But I just think it, it's one of those that I can understand why people are intrigued. Because, I mean, I certainly am. Because you want to know, like, what book was it? Was it a book about, like, killers? Was it something more innocuous? I don't know. This is interesting, too. We also have confiscated a criminal psychology book and various criminology books, notes, license card. Not really sure what the license card has to do with that section, but this goes back to him being a criminology PhD student at Washington State University. So the other documentary evidence, sort of the things you'd expect, medical records, official identifying documents, things like that. Some notes that caught my eye. Just one thing that's just vaguely described as a note in desk one that is described as note to dad from Brian. So Brian Koberger writing a note to his father, Michael Koberger, would be very curious to know what, what the heck that is. And then note from Brian from Montana. 
So I, I don't know whether that's a person named or nicknamed Montana or him in Montana writing a note. I don't know. And then some very hard to read thing that seems to either say a man's drawing or a man's mind drawing or a man's hand drawing. I, I don't know what this is. I'm always intrigued by little weird things like that. Like, what the heck is that? But I'll just flag it and say, let's move on, because I don't know. Next section, apparel. So I will go back and read a statement from the probable cause affidavit for Brian Koberger's arrest to give us a sense of what they're looking for. DM stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. So basically, they're looking for black, dark clothing. So we see a whole list of different items, gloves, face masks, jackets, shirts, pants, boots, hats, all sorts of different clothing that could possibly fit that description. It's not all black. It's also dark green, navy, gray, but they're basically looking for what the suspect would have been wearing that night. And we also, I'll note that they mentioned like a diamond pattern sole. So that would also indicate that they have some sort of footprint that they're trying to compare his shoes to as well. Now, there's a number of swabs, four swabs taken from, I imagine, Brian Koberger. The application requested for sort of buckle swabs, DNA swabs. So I imagine that that's what, so basically they're taking his, his DNA after seizing him. So that's what that is. And then the last section, it's sort of like miscellaneous. I think you could also describe it as drugs. One item is just, I couldn't make it out. And then there's two green leafy substances in a green container in a plastic bag. That to me sounds like cops speak for marijuana. That's my interpretation. Maybe it's not, but I, I Googled that term, that exact phrase, and it came up in a Justice Department memo about a drug bust. So green leafy substance, that is probably pot, I would guess. And in fairness, just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, <laughs> I'm guessing it would not be too unusual for a college student to have marijuana. I'm clutching my pearls, Kevin. They do have a prescription drug that they seized as well here, and they're just looking for all of his drug use potentially because they basically said anything that could indicate like maybe mental state or you know what's going on with him so next this is a bit of a briefer list but i think we can go into the search warrant for brian koberger's 2015 white hyundai elantra this is the car that is sort of very much associated with the university of idaho slayings this is the car that was identified they were looking for a 2011 to 2016 white Hyundai Elantra and video footage from Washington State University identified one that seemed to belong to Koberger and sort of followed it around the campus on the night of. This is very much the car at the center of the case. And while they were raiding the residence, they were also looking at this car. For this one, I would break the seized evidence into the following categories swabs, bags, money, clothing and accessories, tools, car parts, technology, refuse, documents, and receipts. They note that they took a number of swabs. I don't really know exactly what that means in the context of the car. They note that they took a 
two baggies, a Ziploc bag with a pink zipper and a plastic baggie with a green zipper. They don't specify if anything was in those. Specifically in terms of money, I'm talking about the whopping amount of seven quarters, 36 dimes, 32 nickels, and eight pennies. I imagine that's more important because he's touching the coins. Clothing and accessories are hiking boots, goggles, reflective vests, gloves. Tools are specifically tire irons, a shovel, and a wrench. Technology is just a phone charger, actually. Documents include the vaguely named documents, car insurance card, car registration maps. Receipts are, one that stuck out to me a little bit was, there's a comfort in room key holder and stay information. Now, my understanding is that Koberger and his father had this massive drive from Washington to Pennsylvania. So I wonder if that was from that stay, that they stayed at a Comfort Inn somewhere, and basically that's what we're seeing there. Because obviously Koberger had a residence in Washington, in Pullman. I actually asked our cultural correspondent, Cindy Hollenbeck, like, is there a Comfort Inn in Pullman? Because I was looking on Google Maps and there seemed to be a quality inn, not a Comfort Inn. She noted that there were definitely locations in like Spokane, Kennewick. So it's not like they're not in that area. And then, you know, different refuse, used water bottles, fiber, a Band-Aid. And then what really kind of stuck out to me with all of this was actually the car parts that they took. So let's look at this. Brake pedal and gas pedal. So what does that say to you, Kevin, about them seizing those items? When we think back to what happened at the crime scene, it is entirely possible that at some point, even without realizing it, the killer may have stepped perhaps in blood or in other materials which might have gotten on his shoe without him being aware of it. And then it might have been transferred to the brake pedal or the gas pedal. Yes, that's my thoughts exactly. And I think that also speaks to all of the other items they seized from this car. We're talking the door panel, seats and seat cushions, headrest seat belts, floor mats, a visor, a seat belt boot, which apparently like protects your, I guess, seat belt in a way. I don't know. That all tells me like they're looking at when you think about it, the killer of these four kids, he does this horrific slaughter. It's a it's a knife homicide. You know, it's a bloody crime scene, I imagine. He's likely got blood on him. I mean, I would imagine, unless there's some facet of this that we're not understanding. He leaves. He runs into DM. She sees him. He keeps walking out. Then he gets in his car and drives away. So it's not like he's running next door, removing his clothes, taking a shower, and then coming back. He's, he's He's going from the crime scene to his car. So they're probably imagining... There might still be trace evidence, even if he cleaned out the car, even if it's not visible to the naked eye, maybe there might be something there. And so that's what that speaks to me, them sort of tearing out the inside of his car. Essentially, they're, they're trying to find that physical evidence tying him to the crime. So that takes us through the Koberger residence in Pennsylvania and Brian Koberger's Hyundai Elantra gives us a sense of what the police found For you, Kevin, what are your takeaways from this? What do you think this means going forward as far as the prosecution building its case? And I mean, certainly the defense looking at this and trying to formulate their defense of Koberger. 
basically we have to wait and see and, and figure out how some of this evidence is interpreted and analyzed. As we said earlier, the knife that was recovered could be crucially important. It could be the murder weapon. It could just be a dinner knife. So we have to wait and see. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not a lot of definitive conclusions we can draw from this, other than it sounds like the prosecution has a lot of evidence to sift through, and the defense will likely be waiting and looking to find out what that means for for their client, essentially, going forward. And we will be following the case going forward, and we'll keep you all updated on any new developments. And we thank you very much for listening. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.